Park, Illinois, November 7, 1983. Susan Hendricks and her three children, Rebecca, Grace, and Benjamin, were found murdered in their home. Susan's husband and the father of their children, David, was away on a business trip. Susan was just 30 years old, and the children, nine, seven, and five, respectively. Both an axe and a butcher's knife were left at the scene. The bodies were discovered when the police had been called out to the residence for a welfare check. David Hendricks had asked for one after not being able to reach his family by phone. He had called friends, family, and even his secretary, but no one had seen or heard from Susan and the children. They were supposed to go over to Nate and Marianne Palmer's for dinner, but had never shown up. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Please stay tuned at the end of this episode for some updates. Thank you so much for listening. This is a true crime podcast and contains details of murder and other assaults. Listener discretion is advised. This case takes twists and turns. In the end, I am fairly certain I know what happened. I'm sure as a discerning true crime aficionado, you will know as well. Officer Hibbins went to check on the family per the radio call he got. When he got there, he took his flashlight out and started to look around the house. Everything seemed to be okay. He tried a door and was surprised to find it open. And then he ran into two men with flashlights, which startled him. But they immediately explained who they were. One man said his sister lived there, and the other man was his brother-in-law. They were worried something might be wrong. Detective O'Brien arrived, and the officer explained who the men were. The detective told the two relatives to wait outside in case there was something they shouldn't see. When they went in, they saw some things in disarray. At the top of the stairs, a door was halfway open. They saw a form on the bed and thought someone was asleep in there. The detective went into that room, and the officer went further down the hallway to a child's room, which was messy but empty. Bureau drawers had been pulled out. He went into another room, which was a child's room as well. He could see twin beds with figures in them. He was careful not to shine his flashlight in their faces, hoping they were just sleeping. He saw specks of blood at the end of one of the beds. The bedspread was white. There was more blood as he moved the flashlight up. There was a girl with pigtails, young, maybe nine years old. He moved his flashlight to the other bed. There were two more children laying in a blood-soaked bed. He called O'Brien in to see it. O'Brien said, Jesus Christ, when Hibben scanned the room with his flashlight for him. On the right side, there was another girl, younger, maybe seven, who lay in a sleeping position, but her face was a bloody mess. Next to her was a younger boy. He was the worst. There was a wide, bloody hole on the side of his face. Smashed teeth and a cut tongue were visible. There were large gashes on the other side of his face as well, and his neck had been slit. He was laying on his back with one of his legs hanging off the side of the bed. The girl next to him was also badly lacerated. A deep indentation ran across the left side of her face and had opened up a hole in her skull. 
Her throat had also been sliced from ear to ear. The older girl had only a single laceration from her left eye into her hair. Her neck was intact. There was no doubt the children were dead. They also saw an axe and a large butcher knife lying on the bed that was closest to them. They called in for the coroner and extra help. David Hendricks had left for a business trip the night that his family had been slain. He was still gone when the bodies were found, arriving home just after they were discovered. The next day, the headlines read, Four Slain in East Side Home. 313 Carl Drive was the kind of house that was considered an executive bracket home. Back then it was called Far East Bloomington, and it was a very nice area. It was the dream home, as well as the dream neighborhood, to raise a family. This day, however, it was a nightmare. Inside, the walls were splattered with blood. The sheets were soaked in blood. Young wife and mother, Susan Hendricks, and her three young children had been hacked to death with a knife and an axe. It was the grisliest slaying the area had ever seen. David Hendricks was an orthopedics maker and salesman in 1983. He was a self-made millionaire. His wife, Susan, was a homemaker. They were members of an exclusive branch of the Plymouth Brethren, a conservative Christian sect, a fundamentalist Christian group who followed a Bible-based form of worship while keeping to themselves. The Plymouth Brethren began in the early 1800s from Charles Darby, it started very small and stayed small. At the time of the murders, there were only 33,000 members in the United States. Because it was so small, individual group meetings were the primary form of worship, and there were no ministers as such. Because of this, publishing houses had formed the core communication for the Plymouth Brethren in the United States. Susan Hendricks, David's wife, had quit high school to work at the base of one of these, Bible Truth Publishers, which was in Oak Park, where David spent his formative years. Fundamentalist Christians are considered to be on the stricter side, and as an example, divorce was a cause for excommunication. David Hendricks grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home. He was the second of seven children. The family lived in Oak Park, Illinois. His mother was said to be loving. His father was strict. He was an electrical engineer and a perfectionist. There was no TV in the house that they grew up in, as it was a way to expose the children to evil outside influences. The family would go on road trips to meet up with other Plymouth Brethren families, frequently in a neighboring state. David Hendricks' family met the Palmer family at one of these conferences. They had much in common, including the fact that each had seven children in the family. There was a gathering for young people in the Plymouth Brethren at the Palmers' home. David, age 15, noticed Susan Palmer at this gathering. She didn't remember him from this meeting, but she had made a big impression on him. Susan was a year older than David. She was somewhat shy and petite. She was pretty in a quiet way. Susan was a good student with excellent grades. The summer before her senior year, she got a job at Bible Truth Publishers in Oak Park. 
Susan's parents arranged for her to stay at the Hendricks home that summer. The publishers asked her to stay on full-time before the end of the summer. She had not graduated yet. Parents gave their consent, but told her they would not have let her do this for any other type of job. This was a job that could help her spread God's word. She shared an apartment with two other women who worked at Bible Truth. She worked full-time during the day and took classes at night to finish her high school diploma. David Hendricks was a junior in high school at this time, and he worked part-time at Bible Truth Publishers, actively trying to get Susan's attention. He would leave poems on her desk. Eventually, they started to spend lunch hours together. Susan was the first girl David dated. Susan herself had dated other boys, and interestingly, all of them, except one, was named David. They got secretly engaged before David was even out of high school. David got interested in prosthetics and orthotics from a family friend, Heinz Brinkman. Brinkman told him that if he would agree to work for him after schooling, he would help cover the costs of his education. David graduated high school early and went on to his professional courses. In June of 1973, he had completed his education at the age of 18. He and Susan got married a month later. September 24, 1974, their first child, Rebecca, was born. About a year later, David set out to open a business of his own. Susan became pregnant for the second time. Grace was born on April 30, 1976. The family moved into a small apartment in a poor part of town while David was setting up his new business. But eventually, they moved into an upper part of a two-story home. They eventually bought this house and found they had talent for renovating a property and turning a profit in the sale. They did this five more times in two years. Around this time, David got an offer in the mail for a free flying lesson. He tried it out and found he loved it, and it would become a passion of his. Hendricks started to work on a new type of orthotic brace for people who had compression fractures. He was sure he was on to something good. The family moved to Bloomington and opened up a new place, Illinois Orthopedic Appliances. They moved into a small split-level home. Benjamin Hendricks was born four months after they moved to Bloomington. In October 1979, business was booming, and he moved his business to the busy east side of the city. David continued with the flying lessons and bought a plane of his own, a new Cessna 172, for 31000 He paid cash. He applied for a patent for his new back brace in November of 1979. He developed a production and marketing plan. He called the new brace the Cash Brace. Cash stood for Cruciform Anterior Spinal Hyperextension. Susan helped her husband by mailing flyers describing the brace to 24,000 orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists, and orthotists. David and Susan were beyond excited by the response they got. It became so successful that David found he would not have enough time for the patient care part of his business. So he sold Illinois Orthopedic Appliances in November of 1981 
to a Chicago orthodist, Ed Roman. He set up cash manufacturing. He hired Beverly Crutcher as his office manager after telling her he wanted a non-smoker and he didn't want to hear any off-color jokes in the office. David contracted to have a new large two-story home built in a developing area of Bloomington. When it was completed, the family moved into their new home at 313 Carl Drive in July of 1982. David was a person of interest in his family's murder almost immediately. At 11.15 p.m., David's blue Buick pulled up in front of the house. Family members told David what they knew. When Hendricks had been told his whole family was dead, his knees seemed to buckle. Even Benji, he asked? Even little Benji? This is how the family members that were there remembered it. The police remembered it a little differently. Someone said, here he comes, that's David. The two male family members went up to David, and if anything was said, they could not hear it. The only surviving family member from this house, the husband, was automatically on a list of suspects. O'Brien had his badge out. Mr. Hendricks, your family is inside the house. They have been murdered. Oh, no, Hendricks groaned. And then he asked if they had suffered. The scene was violent, the detective answered. They are with the Lord now, Hendricks said. O'Brien found that response odd. The man had only just learned that his family had been murdered. Wouldn't it take time to process this information before saying something like that? Deputy Coroner Brady introduced himself to David Hendricks. Are they all dead? Hendricks asked him. Yes, I'm afraid so, Brady said. Hendricks put his hand to his head and said, Oh my God. They confirmed the names and ages of the children with David. Then David asked if he could go in the house, but they told him, not yet. Another detective, Detective Crow, interviewed David at a neighbor's house, where he had been given coffee and a blanket. David told him that he had left the family home around midnight for his business trip. He went on some business calls in the morning. He tried calling his wife during the day, but got no answer. He checked into a Red Roof Inn at about 3 p.m. and tried calling her again, knowing she should be home for when the children get home from school. He still got no answer. He told the detectives he had called around to family and his secretary. He called the Palmer's house at dinner time, where his wife and kids were expected to be. When he found out that they were not there, he became a little concerned and called a neighbor to see if she had seen Susan. He said he thought the phone must be out of order and Susie just didn't know that he was trying to call her. As the night wore on, he called Bloomington Police and Illinois State Police to see if there had been an accident. He started home not long after this, he told them. They continued to question him about weapons in the house, where his family was when he left for the trip, etc. Detective Crow told him he would like to continue the interview down at the station, and David agreed. Crow thought that David was a little too helpful. He was mostly bothered by how composed he was. He thought if he were in David's place, he would have to be sedated, 
possibly taken to the hospital. He didn't like it. He told a sergeant standing by, he's dirty. At the station, they asked David if he and Susan had been having any marital troubles. He told them no and that they were very happy. They were even thinking about adopting a baby boy because Susan was unable to have more children. They asked him if he had any enemies and if there was anyone he could think of who would want revenge. He said he didn't know of any enemies. When taking a polygraph was brought up, David asked a lot of questions about how it works and who would administer it. He basically said he didn't trust polygraphs and would want to speak to a lawyer before considering it. They even came right out and said he murdered his wife and kids and asked him why he did it. He denied killing them. They told him they could see how he might murder his wife, but how could he murder his kids? They used other methods of trying to get him to react, but he remained composed and denied them all. They said maybe he had a girlfriend. David said no. They said maybe Susan had a boyfriend. David said no. As a way of showing them the marriage was good, he told them about a trip that they had just taken to England for their 10-year anniversary. Deputy Coroner Ed Brooks and pathologist Dr. Antoni Romine performed the autopsy on Susan Hendricks. Dr. Romine found a small encapsulated nodule in her thyroid. He found no evidence of sexual contact. Moving on to the children, they found stomach contents to contain partially digested food, which is brown-gray in color, with particles identifiable as pizza. The children had gone to Chuck E. Cheese with their father that night, while their mother was at a baby shower. They had eaten pizza. David told police that his attorney, Hal Jennings, had advised him not to cooperate, as it was looking like they were trying to put him away. He said he wanted to answer their questions, but he would need the questions submitted in writing, and then he would respond after consulting with his attorney. At the funeral, David Hendricks began crying when Nate Palmer hung up his son's hand-me-down jacket. It had been Benji's black Pittsburgh Steelers jacket a year earlier. He was sobbing when they played the song, Jesus Loves Me. Benji had chosen that song at Sunday school the week before. At the graveside service, David began to panic and asked his mom to get him out of there. This is when she believed he might have begun to understand that his family was really gone. State's attorney Ron Dozier was looking at the case. Was there any good physical evidence? No. It was an unusually clean, bloody scene. The victim's blood was found in only two bedrooms. There was only one other place, and it was just a small smudge at the edge of the sink in the upstairs bathroom. There was no blood splatter on the handle of the axe, no fingerprints or even smudges of fingerprints on the handle of the axe. No fingerprints on the knife either. No bloody clothes or towels were found. And yet, the crime scene indicated the killer would have been splattered in blood. There was no evidence of forced entry. David had receipts from his business trip to Wisconsin. There was nothing of value found in his office or his plane hangar. There was time of death. 
police confirmed that Hendricks had taken the children to Chuck E. Cheese and ate between 6.45 and 7 p.m. There would be a lot of back and forth on whether the time of death could be determined by the stomach contents. Dr. Michael Baden, a New York City medical examiner, was called to help on this. After some experiments and examining the stomach contents, Baden consulted with Dr. Romine, the autopsy pathologist, and agreed. The children died two to four hours after they ate the pizza. In another words, between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. Another very interesting development in the investigation was that David had been actively recruiting models used for the brochures for his cash brace. Even more interesting is that they were all young, attractive women, and David himself did the measurements for the brace they would wear in the photos. One model in particular seemed to have caught David's attention, Carla Webb. At a conference in Arizona, she told investigators that he had tried to kiss her while she was showing him the city. More than a few models told them that David had wanted them to wear leotards without a bra while getting measured for the brace. More than a few told him he had asked them to take off their top and wear a robe so he could fit the brace close to their skin. Most of these women said he implied that he was a doctor, so it was okay. He even asked some of the models to only wear underpants while being measured. Monday, December 5th, David Hendricks was arrested. The day after Hendricks was arrested, the FBI profile arrived in the mail. The crime was premeditated in a fantasy of a religious-type nature to shock society. The subject desired power and control over the victims. All assaults to victims were to the facial area, indicating that the subject knew the victim and the family very well. The subject had a close personal association, particularly with Benjamin, due to excessive facial damage to Benjamin. The subject's placement of the axe and knife on the bed with the two children's bodies contains some ritualism or symbolic meaning to the subject. The axe and knife were weapons of choice by the subject as opposed to weapons of opportunity. These murders were well-planned in advance. The subject was very familiar with the layout of the residence and resides in an upper-middle-class neighborhood and lives in close proximity to the victims. Ron Dozier was already pretty sure he had his man. This just cemented it more for him. He and his assistant Murphy just had to prove it. Dennis Dodwell of the State Crime Lab was one of the witnesses to be called before the grand jury. He described the crime scene. He also explained the body's wounds. Susan's body, he said, had eight wounds. Grace had five. Becky, two. And Benjamin had 16. Susan had a stab wound that went through her body to her spine. He described how the bedspread partially covered Susan's body. It looked as though it had been pulled over her head and then pulled back down. He said that the way the blanket was, was as if somebody covered her face because they were going to be in that room for a little while, and they wouldn't have to see it while they were in there. 
and then uncovered it as they left the room. It was something they had seen before. Brady Murphy made the opening statement when the trial started. Some of the especially interesting points he brought up were, the children could have been killed as early as 9 p.m., some three hours before Hendricks said he left for Wisconsin for a business trip. A series of phone calls from Hendricks was what led to the discovery of the bodies. They would also be talking about the struggle that was going on inside of David Hendricks. They said that they would show that Hendricks led a dual life. Someone who appears to live life as a model husband, father, as well as a Christian with a high degree of self-discipline, but who in actuality is materialistic and indulges in luxuries that he will not allow other members of his family. The evidence will show that he has had a recent change in appearance to the extent of losing 40 to 50 pounds, shaving off his mustache and changing his hairstyle, as well as developing a newer and freer lifestyle where he traveled extensively. Murphy went on to say this was due to desired sexual experiences. It was those experiences that created a problem for the defendant. He was struggling with the moral crisis that his dual lifestyle caused him. When David took the stand, he explained his change of appearance in the 16 months leading up to his arrest. He said that he was 275 pounds when they moved from Stanford to Bloomington in the summer of 1982. His doctor put him on a diet because his high blood pressure had increased. He made a change to be healthier, and Susan encouraged it. He explained the change in his hairstyle was because of a free haircut coupon that he got in the mail, and that's when the style was changed. And he shaved his mustache because it was something Susan had always wanted, and he decided to surprise her. One of David's earliest models testified that he had asked her to take her measurements in a bra and panties. And as they were measuring, he decided that he would need to use some plaster, and he asked her to remove her bra saying that the plaster material would get on the bra. He asked her to strip down to her panties. I asked him if the photo shoot would be done with clothes on, and he said yes. And I said, well, if I don't, I didn't see any point in taking the blouse off if it was going to be done with clothes on. Another witness was Penny Peevler. She testified that she had met Hendricks in July of 1983. She said she was walking alone to a city swimming pool, wearing a swimsuit and shorts, when she saw Hendrick's car circle the block and then stop. He asked me my name and I told him. He told me that he worked for cash, his business, and then he asked me, well, he asked if I wanted to model for him. And he asked how old I was and I said I was 16. And then he gave me his business card and he said I'd have to make sure it was all right with my parents and talk to them about it. Ron Dozier next brought up Peevler's mother to the stand, but before she could testify, Jennings asked to address the court without the jury present. After the jurors left the courtroom, Jennings asked the judge to bar the mother's testimony because it would be more prejudicial than relevant. Dozier argued the mother would testify that she was upset that her daughter was approached on the street and that she called him at his home to tell him so. 
She wouldn't testify, Dozier said, that Hendricks wouldn't discuss his conduct with her and said that it didn't matter anyway because he had hired another model. Judge Boehner allowed the defense motion and barred the mother's testimony. Nancy Jarrett testified Hendricks appeared at her apartment door early one weekend evening in the summer of 1983 to say he was looking for a model. She had been doing some part-time modeling. Prior to that time, Dozier asked, had you had any contact with him in any way, by telephone or through intermediaries or anything else? No. Did you have any kind of appointment with him when he came to your door that evening? No. Jarrett said she was heading out the door for a long-distance bike ride when Hendricks just showed up. He said he wanted to do the fitting that night and asked if I would be back later. I said between 7.30 and 8. He asked if he could come back to the house then, and I said yes. He said he needed to fit the back brace before he could do the photography work. Were there any further explanations of what was involved in the fitting? No, he didn't explain the fitting. I just asked him about the business then, like, do you sell the brace here in town? He said no, a lot of business was done overseas. He then showed me a picture of the last brochure that had Kathy Harper in it, and Echo. I know those two. He said he would come back later. The young woman said Hendricks was waiting for her when she returned from her bike ride at 8 p.m. Lee Ann Wilmeth, an insurance company secretary and part-time model with long blonde hair, was the next prosecution witness. She said that about 8.30, one night in early August, Hendricks unexpectedly had shown up at her apartment. She said he had heard of her from another model. He introduced himself and showed me his business card. He told me who gave him my name and showed me a pamphlet of a girl that had done some modeling. I knew the girl, so I let him in. We sat down and he showed me all the information that he had about his business and talked about what he wanted me to do, the job. He told me he wanted to take pictures of me wearing the brace, and he said he would have to measure me for the brace and that all I could wear is underpants. He asked if that would make me uncomfortable. I said yes. I told him I was going to wear my bathing suit bottoms instead. He said that would be okay. And he asked me if I wanted to do it then or the next day and I said I wanted to do it then and just get it over with. Another model testified that she had brought her husband along for the meeting with Hendricks for the measurements. After they talked for a little while, he told me that he thought I would be too tall to model his brace. He left the room and came back with one of the braces. She said he held up the back to her body and said her height of 5 feet 11 inches was too much for the brace to accommodate. He wasn't going to use me as a model because he thought I was too tall. Did you have any further contact with Mr. Hendricks at all after that? No, I did not. The next witness was Susan Ryburn's husband, the model who had just testified. He stated, when we got there, the place was dim. There was no front lights on, so we checked around the side of the building to see if their other lights were lit. Then I stepped around to the front door, and Mr. Hendricks answered the door. He asked me what I was doing there. What did you say, if anything, Murphy asked. At that time, Susan approached and said, This is my husband. I'm here for a 7 o'clock appointment, at which time his mouth dropped completely open. That brought Jennings to his feet. I am going to again object, Judge. The man is volunteering information and characterization and drawing conclusions as to conduct. Move to strike. Overruled. One model testified that she was told she would get a check sent in the mail for the modeling she had done. 
Instead, later that evening, David Hendricks turned up at her house and said he decided to bring her check to pay her. The attorney asked her what time that was. She said 9.30. On cross-examination, she did answer that David left after talking to her for only two or three minutes. They also asked her, had David propositioned her in any way, and she said no. Another model who was modeling the brace live at a convention in Phoenix said that David asked her to show him around the city that evening. The modeling day ended early, and he said they could just go attend the reception and then go see the sights. They went back to the hotel room where she had her fitting and changed back into her dress. They ended up talking about religion, and David said he had been questioning his faith lately. He had been reading a lot lately and was not sure his religion was the right religion. At the reception, she talked to David's office manager, Mrs. Crutcher, and asked her if it would be okay to go out to eat with Mr. Hendricks and see the sights. She wanted to be sure he was not going to make any advances on her. The model then testified that they took David's rental car and drove to Arizona State University. While they were driving, they talked about relationships. The model stated that Hendricks told her that he had had several affairs and that he didn't think there was anything wrong with them. Then he said, if he told his wife, that would hurt her, and wouldn't that be wrong? And he asked her if she thought that that was a bad attitude or not. And she told him, yeah, that's lousy, because in another words, you are saying what she doesn't know won't hurt her. When they drove up Camelback Mountain to see the lights of the city, and they stopped, he leaned in towards her and said, I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to anyway. He tried to kiss her, and she moved away. And she said, don't try it. Don't even think about it. He said to her, but you're so pretty. She told him that she did not bring him up there for that. It was to see the city lights and nothing else. He said he was sorry and that he thought that that's what she had wanted they drove back down the mountain and decided to call it a night. The last model to testify would prove to be the one that David Hendricks was the most obsessed with. That's the end of part one. Part two will be out sometime this weekend. I have some updates on the podcast. First, I have been trying to figure out a way to get more episodes out each month without diminishing the quality, while still working a full-time job. After much soul-searching, I have figured out that although I think quality research is really important, I have been spending way too much time on it, and often going down too many rabbit holes. I'm going to be more disciplined in that department, and I'm going to make it my goal to get out at least two episodes each month. Also, I may sprinkle in some mixed episodes where I cover a bunch of short cases in one episode. These would be ones that are really crazy, but there just isn't much background or information on the perpetrator or the victim. You can let me know if you like these or if I should just drop them. Although I work an office job full-time to pay the bills, I do have a background in voiceover, writing, and of course, the love of true crime. I can also be a little bit of a perfectionist about the writing and that I'm telling you the story in a true but compelling way. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your input 
following on Instagram or Facebook, and actually taking the time to comment. There are a lot of podcasts that I listen to on a commute back and forth to my full-time job, and there are only a handful of them that I have taken time to post anything on social media. I have given them all five stars on Apple Podcasts, though, of course, as I know that this is important for a podcast to find more of an audience. So anyway, I just wanted to say I really do appreciate you, and thank you so much 